Well, saints, in our ancient past series, we're coming off of Sunday with ancient times. Was anybody blessed by that word? Yeah. 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 In keeping with the Spirit's direction and the amazing word that our pastors delivered to us, tonight is going to address ancient times, times in the future, and our times. And I promise it's an appointed time. Amen. We're going to be covering Jeremiah 13. And at least some of 14, and we're going to endeavor to get all the way to the end. Now, we have some amazing content and concepts that are going to take some time to cover. We're going to work to move quickly, and we need you to be with us. We need you to talk to us. We're a family, not an institution. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. So, before we pick up, we're going to review a few concepts to make sure we're right where we need to be as we jump into Jeremiah 13. Our first scripture comes from Deuteronomy 4, 25. When you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger. Saints, the lamb was slain before the creation of the world. Our king, our great commander, and our savior had a plan for redemption for the beginning. But first and foremost, it was for Israel. He redeemed them, and he also knew their propensity to sin. For that reason, he has a cycle that is in place through the generations, a cycle that we have been talking about that we want to remind you of as we pick up in 26 and 28 of the same chapter. It says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood, and stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. So in this cycle of chastisement in Deuteronomy, already knowing that they have a promise, God tells them that this is what's going to happen if they disobey. They'll be chastised, they'll be scattered, and they'll serve the idols there that they served in the land. God will root them out as a cycle to bring them into restoration through discipline. Now if we move on to Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 32, 23-25. God continues this, saying, I will heap misfortunes on them. I will use my arrows on them. They will be wasted by famine and consumed by plague and bitter destruction. And the teeth of beasts I will send upon them with the venom of crawling things out of the dust. Outside the sword will bereave and inside terror, both young man and virgin, the nursling with the man of gray hair. He's not only going to bring them chastisement in the form of scattering, but he's going to bring national calamity in the form of plague and famine. The reason why we're sharing this is you're going to see this cycle of chastisement start to take form tonight in the book of Jeremiah. Now, Nick is going to read Leviticus 26, but what it does is it reiterates and expands this same theme. Isn't it comforting to know that Yahweh, even before the nation of Israel was established, even before the creation of the world, he already had something in mind. 
in order to restore his nation that he knew would need restoration at different points throughout history. Yes. Isn't that comforting for you? Yes. yes. What we're doing as we go through Deuteronomy and then Leviticus 26 here together is we're laying that cycle, that cycle of chastisement out so that you can see it plainly and it can be evident to you because it's going to be pivotal for these chapters of Jeremiah that we're going over tonight. Come on. So Leviticus 26, verse 14 says, But if you do not obey me, and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes, and if your soul abhors my ordinances, so as not to carry out all my commandments, and so break my covenant, I, in turn, will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption and fever, that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Mm. Also, you will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies. And those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. So what he's saying here it is the same thing that we read in Deuteronomy, but Leviticus 26 expounds on it. He's saying, hey, when this happens, you're going to be invaded. You're going to go into exile. The promise here and the silver lining into all of this is that the Lord will not destroy His people completely. There will not, there has not been and there never will be a complete and total destruction of His nation and His people. He will always take them into exile, take them into chastisement in order to help them to see their true state and condition so that in turn they can cry out to Him so that He can restore them back into the land back into His blessing and back into the promise. This brings us to this covenant chastisement cycle that Judah's going to take us through. Wow. That's hard to read. <laughs> Let me read it to you. When we survey the passages above that we just covered, you discover a very clear pattern or cycle that unfolds in the following order. Israel breaks the covenant and commits idolatry. This is step one. This is the reality in your life where you began and the reality of the cycle in Israel. God disciplines them first with various national calamities. Next, the land itself is invaded by a foreign power. Four, finally, the people are exiled from the land. Five, eventually they repent in their exile. And six, the Lord restores them back to the land. Recognizing and understanding this pattern is essential to understanding the end times. If we want to understand the prophets, we must see the pattern that God has laid down from the beginning. More than that, if we want to rightly interpret the prophets for our day, our time, and the times that are ahead, it's not going to come from the best-selling Christian book. It's not going to come from the headlines. It will come by recognizing God's pattern that has been there from the beginning. Our next slide is something that you'll be familiar with, but we want to put it in this context. Titler cycle in history. Anybody remember that? Yeah. Anybody remember the cycle that was in the Judges? That's where we stole the slide from. <laughs> the Judges is not the only place that this cycle exists. It exists all through Israel's history, just as it does through all humanity. Israel was in bondage. And then spiritual faith began to arise. Courage inside of them arose. Liberty was the result of a judge who took his stand in the name of the Lord and delivered his people. 
Then they began to experience abundance, where God is blessing your life. Things are not quite as hard as they used to be. And that turns to selfishness oh so quickly. On a very practical and personal note, all of us would do well to focus on this part of the cycle. (laughs) The bridge between abundance and selfishness. Find out the better God has been to you, the more selfish we want to become. And we must turn back to him so that we don't complete the loop. Come on. Selfishness turns into complacency, then apathy, and it results in a dependence upon sinful decisions and sinful gods and lands right back in bondage. Now, there is a day that this cycle will be completely broken for Israel, which should give us hope for our own lives. But as it stands, we're still somewhere in the cycle. And during Jeremiah's day, we are in the thick of the cycle during the time frame when dependence Dependence upon wicked schemes, wicked gods has come to its full fruition and Babylon is about to put them in bondage. With that in mind, we want to begin by praying and then reading 13 and 14. Any man at God in the room feel a stirring to stand up and pray for us? Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord God, we thank you, Lord, for your word that is supernatural. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, Lord, that we might see the wonderful things in your law. Lord, open our eyes, Lord, to see the patterns for you. Lord, to see the patterns in our own lives, God, and to see how you dealt with Israel, Lord. To see what you want, how you want us to deal with it, God. Lord, we love you, God. We are dependent on your revelation tonight. but we're dependent on your spirit to move us into obedience, Father. Lord, open our eyes and our hearts tonight, God, to receive what you have for us, Father. Let it be no ordinary night, mighty God. But may your spirit break out in your Father. And may it break out in show and obedience. But we love you. We trust you, Father. Have your word here tonight in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, Linton, why don't you do us the double honor of reading chapters 13 and 14 for us. This is what the Lord said to me. Go and buy a linen belt and put it around your waist, but do not let it touch water. So I bought a belt as the Lord directed and put it around my waist. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the belt you bought and and are wearing around your waist and go now to Parath and hide it there in in a crevice in the rocks. So I went and hid it at Parath, as the Lord told me. Many days later, the Lord said to me, go now to Parath and get the belt I told you to hide there. So I went to Barath and dug up the belt and took it from the place where I had hidden it. But now it was ruined and completely useless. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord says. In the same way, I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. These wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who follow the stubbornness of their hearts and go after other gods to serve and worship them, will be like this belt, completely useless. For as a belt is bound around a man's waist, so I bound the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to me, declares the Lord, to be my people for my renown and and praise and honor. But they have not listened. Say to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, every wineskin should be filled with wine. And if they say to you, Don't we know that every wineskin should be filled with wine? Then tell them, this is what the Lord says. I am going to fill with drunkenness all who live in this land, including the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all those living in Jerusalem. I will smash them one against the other. 
fathers and sons alike, declares the Lord. I will allow no pity or mercy or compassion to keep me from destroying them. Hear and pay attention. Do not be arrogant, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings the darkness, before your feet stumble on darkening hills. You hope for light, but he will turn it into thick darkness and change it to deep gloom. But if you do not listen, I will weep in secret because of your pride. My eyes will be bitterly overflowing with tears because the Lord's flock will be taken captive. Say to the king and to the queen mother, come down from your thrones, for your glorious crowns will fall from your heads. The cities in the Negev will be shut up, and there will be no one to open them. All Judah will be carried into exile, carried completely away. Lift up your eyes and see those who are coming from the north. Where is the flock that was entrusted to you, the sheep of which you boasted? What will you say when the Lord sets over you those you cultivated as your special allies? Will not pain grip you like that of a woman in labor? And if you ask yourself, why has this happened to me? It is because of your many sins that your skirts have been torn off and your body mistreated. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Neither can you do good for our custom to doing evil. I will scatter you like chaff, driven by the desert wind. This is your lot, the portion I have decreed for you, declares the Lord. Because you have forgotten me and trusted in false gods, I will put up your skirts over your face, that your shame may be seen. You adultery, your adulteries and lustful names, your shameless prostitution. I have seen your detestable acts on the hills and in the fields. Woe to you, O Jerusalem! How long will you be unclean? This is the word of the Lord to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Judah mourns her city's language. They wail for the land, and a cry goes up for Jerusalem. The nobles send their servants for water. They go to the cisterns but find no water. They return with their jars unfilled, dismayed and despairing. They cover their heads. The ground is cracked because there is no rain in the land. The farmers are dismayed and cover their heads. Even the doe in the field deserts her newborn fawn because there is no grass. Wild donkeys stand on the barren heights and pant like jackals. Their eyesight fails for lack of passion. Although our sins testify against us, O Lord, do something for the sake of your name. For our backsliding is great. We have sinned against you. O hope of Israel, its Savior in times of distress, why are you like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who stays only a night? Why are you like a man taken by surprise, like a warrior powerless to save? You are among us, O Lord. And we bear your name. Do not forsake us. This is what the Lord says about this people. They greatly love to wander. They do not restrain their feet. So the Lord does not accept them. He will now remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. Then the Lord said to me, Do not pray for the well-being of this people. Although they fast, I will not listen to their cry. Though they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Instead, I will destroy them with the sword, famine, and plague. But I said, Ah, sovereign Lord, the prophets keep telling them, You will not see the sword or, or suffer famine. Indeed, I will give you lasting peace in this place. 
Then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. Mm. I have not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. They are prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions of their own minds. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the prophets who are prophesying in my name. I did not send them. Yet they are saying, no sword or famine will touch this land. Those same prophets will perish by the sword and famine. And the people they are prophesying to will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and sword. There will be no one to bury them or their wives, their sons or their daughters. I will pour out on them the calamity they deserve. Speak this word to them. Let my eyes overflow with tears, night and day without ceasing. For my virgin daughter, my people, has suffered a great, a grievous wound, a crushing blow. If I go into the country, I see those slain by the sword. If I go into the city, I see the ravages of famine. Both prophet and priest have, have gone to a land they, not, they know not. Have you rejected Judah completely? Did you despise Zion? Why have you afflicted us? So that we cannot be healed. We hope for peace, but no good has come. For a time of healing, but there is only terror. O Lord, we acknowledge our wickedness and the guilt of our fathers. We have indeed sinned against you. For the sake of your name, do not despise us. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember your covenant with us, and do not break it. Do any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain? the skies themselves send down showers? No, it is you, O Lord our God. Therefore our hope is in you, for you are the one who does all this. Man, to give Linton a short breath before we have him read again, uh, just want to tell you, has anybody seen a, just an amazing movie before? Something that you thought was put together really well? I don't know what your definition of a good movie is, but mine is one that you don't really focus too much on singular details. You wait as the movie forms a holistic picture and a holistic story. Tonight, you're going to find out that these two chapters are like that. There's going to be a lot of details that seem like it's just repetitions of the last chapters we've covered. And I promise you, as you zoom out a bit, and we're going to help you do that, you're going to get a holistic picture that is going to tell one of the most amazing stories in Israel's history that you can get. So, Linton, why don't we pick up in verse 13 and read verse 1 and 2. This is what the Lord said to me. Go and buy a linen belt and put it around your waist, but do not let it touch water. So I bought a belt as the Lord directed and put it around my waist. So if you dig into commentaries on this verse, you're going to find out that they start looking at all kinds of details and things that really don't even matter. Uh, They say things like, well, the reason why he can't let it touch water is, you know, if it touches water, it would become more comfortable. And they say things like that, etc., etc. And to be honest with you, they just miss the point entirely with those details. We're going to walk through the text with you, and we're going to point out some things that help understand what's going on. The first one is, is that Jeremiah is a priest from Anathoth. Anathoth is his hometown, and Anathoth is an entire town that is made up of priests. In fact, it was given to the lineage of Aaron for the priests to live in. So Jeremiah is a priest, not just a prophet, he's a priest as well. 
And Jeremiah is going to buy a linen belt, which is exactly what a priest should be wearing. Hmm. We're going to read that in a little bit, but you will see that it's mandated for priests to be wearing a linen belt. Now, in the coming verses that we're going to get into, namely chapter 14, verse 1, God's going to reveal to Jeremiah that the judgment that is coming will start with a drought, a lack of water. Interest, interestingly enough, God's telling him not to put that belt in water. Might be symbolic of what's coming. But you know, we don't mind sharing with you early in tonight's lesson what is coming because we want to help you connect a few themes. But first, before we do that, we're going to jump into Amos 11 and 12, and we're going to start forming kind of a cycle here. It's the cycle of chastisement. And we're going to see where that cycle starts in terms of God's judgment. So who wants to read? Paul Rosales, you get uh, Amos 8, 11 through 12. And uh, was that you, Ben? You're going to get Leviticus 16, 3 through 5. Nolan, you're going to get Isaiah 11, 5. Uh, Assad, you're going to get Acts 21, 10 through 11. Rob, you're going to get Ephesians 6, 12 through 15. Amos 8, 11, and 12. Hear this, the days are coming. This is the declaration of the Lord God. When I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord, people will stagger from sea to sea and roam from north to east, seeking the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. You see, in this book, Amos 8, Judgment is coming for the house of Israel, but where does it start? Come on, we just read it. Where does it start? With a famine. It starts with a famine, a drought, not for food, but for the word of God. There will be a literal famine where nobody can find the word of God. Now, Jeremiah, a priest, could not allow the belt to touch water. Maybe... Because there will be a drought coming. Maybe this is symbolic of what God is going to do in Jeremiah and Israel's future. Well, let's continue and see. Let's pick up in Leviticus 16, 3-5. And we're going to find out what that belt might represent. You interested? Yeah. Yeah. Alright, who's got Leviticus 16, 3-5? I do, and it says this. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area. With a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So verse 3, Aaron is to enter the sanctuary. What group of people in Israel are we talking about? Priests. Priests. Keep going. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on a linen, a linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. He must do what before he puts these garments on? Bathe himself himself with water before he puts the garments on. Keep going. Finish it up. From from the Israelite community, he is to take two milk goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So this is definitely one of the first occurrences that we see this uh, type of linen belt in the Word. And this is... One of the most obvious examples that the Lord, as well as Jeremiah, is drawing from as they're playing these items out. The garment that we're speaking about, this linen belt, it's a belt that a priest is required to wear. But where does he put it? He puts it right next to some of the most intimate areas on his entire body. It's something that is a sacred garment, and it holds 
a great depth of symbolism in the word. The priest is charged, you must wash yourself before you put this belt on. Mm. Before you put the belt on, make sure that you wash yourself. Bathe before you put it on. This is a symbol of purity, obviously. In this regard, God is definitely the ultimate priest. But, what God is doing in this passage is He's looking at Jeremiah and He's saying, Hey, Jeremiah, you are going to stand in my stead. You are going to represent me, but... I don't want you to bathe. I don't want this thing to touch water. The reason for this is that this is a, an example for the rest of the nation that there is purity missing in God's nation. Wow. Mm. Wow. Purity is missing, an absence of water in this case. What was meant to be holy, the belt, the nation of Israel, God's people, it's corrupted by Babylon. It's corrupted by Babylonian things. It's corrupted by Babylonian powers. So the Lord is going to give them over to their corruption. He's going to lead His people into exile, into Babylon. You should be thinking about this cycle that we put on the screen earlier as we're discussing this. The Lord's saying, Israel, you are linen. You're supposed to be pure. <laughs> You're supposed to be unsweaty. You're supposed to be close to me in secret. But you are not. And I have rejected this generation. You're supposed to be a sacred garment unto me, but instead you are rotten. Mm. When you get to 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 1, you're going to see why God forbid Jeremiah to let the belt touch water. We've mentioned it several times and hinted at it. But before we go into this, we're going to need to go into Isaiah chapter 11 and read a little bit. Before we read it, because we've got one verse to cover in Isaiah 11. You guys following me? Yeah. Yeah. Israel is the linen that is supposed to be around the great high priest. And it was soiled. It was yucky. We're not going into it tonight. But the term for belt, it's more like underwear. Yeah. The picture here is something that was supposed to be spotless, clean, closer to you than you would ever let the outside world has become rotten. And Jeremiah is now displaying an example of exactly how rotten it is and hanging their dirty laundry out for everyone to see. But Isaiah 11.5 gives us an answer. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Oh, come on, Nolan. Did it say righteousness might be his belt? No. Did it say maybe one day it will be a sash around his waist? No. Righteousness will be his belt. This is the Davidic Messiah that is in view here. The one who would cause Israel to be a righteous linen garment around him. Something that was a prize that he was proud of that was not something you swept into your laundry room before a family came over. He's describing their present state in Jeremiah. He's saying you are not holy, but you are supposed to be. You are always called to be. This is not the state that God will leave them in. They will be intimate. They will be pure and they will be Right next to him. The belt, it will eventually be washed. It'll be washed with water and the kind of water that descends from the Holy Spirit if you were to happen to read John 7. The kind of water that renews, transforms, makes men holy, righteous, and blameless in his sight. We are going to show you how we are going to get there. But it comes through the cycle that we began with. There is no holy... There is no purity without going through the necessary steps to turn from sin. 
Now that you're starting to see these connections, we want to point out Acts 21 and remind you of these themes in the New Testament. Did we hand that out? Yeah. Now, I don't know what you were taught about the Newer Testament, but I have to believe that Paul and Agabus understood the prophets very, very well. You know, what if Agabus is saying the leaders are in the same shape as Paul's day as they were in Jeremiah's day? What if by taking this belt and putting it around Paul's waist, putting it around him and saying they are going to bind you up in this way, is referring to Jeremiah and saying, this belt is just as dirty as it was in the days of Jeremiah, but it will be cleansed. You see, with that in mind, I have, it's kind of hard to believe that this is just about Paul being handcuffed. I think that Agabus might be testifying to Paul and saying, hey, you're going to go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound up, but there's an unchanging nature in the restoration that God will perform for the leaders of Jerusalem. Like he did it in Jeremiah's day, he's going to take that nasty belt with the intention of cleaning it up and girding it around himself. The constant battle here is the decay and rot in the belt. And that is what God is showing Jeremiah. The belt is what God as a priest is putting around himself. The belt is Israel that God has wrapped around his waist. And there's a constant battle for decay and rot in Israel. It happens over and over, the cycle of chastisement. But you know what that cycle leads to? It always leads to restoration, and that's why God is pointing this out. But you know, Christians, we have the same problem. We have a battle against decay and rot. We have a battle in in maintaining purity as we are the belt of the Lord. You want to know how we fight that? Well, we have a command in Ephesians 6, 12 through 15. Who's got that? cycle in our own lives? How do we prevent selfishness and complacency from grabbing a hold of us in the time of abundance and revelation that we are sitting in right now? Well, we put on the armor of God. As God's people, we put on the belt of truth. The belt is meant to be a faithful, truthful witness. Just like Israel, we're supposed to be close to the Lord's intimate place. We are supposed to be close to the Lord in a way that that is defined by an intimate relationship with Him. Now, we're talking about going into a, a secret place and having a relationship with the Lord. What was Israel doing in secret? Well, they were defying the Lord's commands. They were doing what they wanted to do. They were satisfying their own selfish desires. 
There's a switch that happens there. When you find yourself, when no one else is watching, you're in a secret place and you're choosing, I want to be intimate with my father right now. Mm. I want to pray that he, he would put on the belt of truth and the other spiritual armament that I need to fight his battles for him. Israel is not doing this in Jeremiah's day. But God will not leave his people that way. We're going to see this even more clearly as we get to verse 10. But before we get there, we need to read 3 through 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the belt you bought and are wearing around your waist. And go now to Barak and hide it there in a crevice in the rock. So I went and hid it at Barak, as the Lord told me. So he went and he hid it at Barak. Because I know for every one of you, you immediately knew where that was. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Now, just in case you don't, I want to highlight to you that there are arguments on both sides of the coin of where this location is. Parath means Euphrates. So some speculate that it's symbolic and that it's a spring or a small location outside of Anathoth. The context here would be, if we're going the symbolic route, that Jeremiah went to a place called the Euphrates in Israel and that's where he put it. (laughs) Many people believe that it is actually the Euphrates River, like the real thing, up in Assyria, Babylonian region. Which is a long ways away for Jeremiah. (laughs) Break out Google Maps sometime. Go from Jerusalem all the way up to about Mosul, you know, Turkey kind of area. It's not a fun path even if you have a tank. Yeah. (laughs) With that said, the point remains the same either way. So we're not going to drift into debating endlessly exactly where it was. It is the Euphrates in either case. Whether it's symbolic or it is all the way up to the Euphrates, the actual river, the belt is being taken there for a reason. It's not a random location. What's happening is what is precious and holy to the Lord. It's about to be buried near the Euphrates River, Babylon, the place that is indicative of their coming judgment and their hidden sinful behavior. So now the Lord is going to give them over to that sinister, hidden behavior. And he's showing them that by burying the belt that represents pure, righteous Israel off in the distance in a place that they don't belong. Jeremiah the priest put this belt on, representing Israel, just like the Lord, because he's a prophet. He is showing Israel what God is like. But he did not touch water because there is something coming ahead. And now he's being told, go hide it at the Euphrates. Kids play games all of the time. We're about to hit Resurrection Sunday where they're going to hide Easter eggs all over the place. Yeah. With that in mind, God does not do things for a frivolous reason. The generation of Israelites are currently unclean, but they're trying to hide themselves, hide their uncleanness. And they're doing it by wearing pretty priestly garments on the outside. While the pure linen belt is actually finding its home in a den called Babylon. Wow. Mm. Wow. Jeremiah 40, 30 through 31 is something I want to remind you of. What are you doing, O devastated one? Why dress yourself in scarlet and put on jewels of gold? Why shade your eyes with paint? You adorn yourself in vain. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. I hear a cry as of a woman in labor, a groan as of one bearing her first child. Now, I don't know if you remember this from previous lessons, but we compared it to Jezebel in the painted eyes. 
This evening, I want to point out to you that she's adorning herself. She's working to present something that is holy and righteous on the outside. And then that little end note at 30. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. See, the Israelites were shading themselves. They were trying to project priestly adornment to the one true God while they loved foreign gods. The gods that they loved were the empires of the day. Babylon, the projection of strength upon the earth that they thought they might find refuge in. But Babylon is going to despise her. And she is going to faint and she's going to pant like a woman in labor. They are over you now is the kind of idea. Oh, you had this lover's eye, but now he cares nothing for you. And he's coming to kill you. So the love that you thought you had in an adulterous relationship turned out to be just as fickle as your heart was, Israel. It's a powerful object lesson. There was hidden activity, sneaky behavior. The holy belt that God had destined them for, that hidden love, it had been corrupted by Babylon and given to Babylon. So now Babylon will expose them and be the tool and instrument of their destruction. This is going to become even more apparent in verse 21. If you're catching these verses, I promise we're going to tie it in together. The point is not that they're going to decay. They already have. The object lesson with the belt is showing what has already been transpiring. They're not decaying when they go to Babylon. The wicked sinful condition is already present and that's why they're going to Babylon. The point is for them, the Israelites, to become aware of their own sinful condition. Just reflect on that for a minute. God's word is a mirror. The point is for them to become aware of their own sinful condition. So that they can be restored. The cycle of chastisement always in in restoration. But a recognition of sin and repentance has to precede it. And it's no different to this day. Pick up in verse 6 and 7 for me, Linton. Many days later, the Lord said to me, Go now to Perak and get the belt I told you to hide there. So I went to Perak and dug up the belt and took it from the place where I had hidden it. But now it was ruined and completely useless. Man, ruined and completely useless. That which was once a belt, Israel, that was on the Lord, and the Lord wore it close to him, has become completely useless. useless. You know what we could say in comment to that? They were once the salt of the earth. They were once bound to the the Lord's uh, loins as the salt of the earth and now they've lost their saltiness Matthew 5.13 says you are the salt of the earth but if the salt loses its saltiness how can it be made salty again it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men think about that belt for a second If the salt loses its saltiness, if the holy belt loses its holiness, if the belt of truth loses its truthfulness, it is useless. Well, you might say there's some good in it. No, if it has lost these things, it is completely useless. And what is it in danger of? God's going to throw it out and let it be trampled by men. Now, It's not that they were never holy. They were holy before. 
This generation, they were holy. It's that now they were abandoning their function to the Euphrates. Like that belt being taken and hidden there, they were abandoning their function to those Babylonian gods that they loved so much. But the thing you need to know is it's not going to stay that way. God is trying to show them this for a reason. He's trying to get them to understand its condi their condition because he is not going to let that stay. So with that in mind, let's recap just for a bit. God told Jeremiah, do not let water touch that belt. We know what's coming. There will be a drought coming up. It's almost like that belt which represents Israel not being allowed to touch water is what God is actually going to do to them in the coming chapter. They're not going to be allowed to have water from the Lord. Then he tells, tells Jeremiah to bring it to the Euphrates. That kind of sounds like an exile coming, doesn't it? Yeah. After drought, bring it to the Euphrates. We, ha we have to recognize that this is the Euphrates River. Babylon has this giant river that we've crossed a couple times. The thing is massive. It's like the Mississippi of the Middle East. But there's also another one that we've crossed, and it's the Nile. That thing is even bigger. The Nile is the source of Egypt, and the Euphrates is the source of Babylon. All Israel had was a tiny little Jordan that we've also seen, and it's a tiny little river that is not much of a source for them. It is a river that descends from a mountain to a mountain, and it's surrounded by mountains, and it's really hard to get to, and there's not a lot of water in it. The truth about that is, is Israel was not supposed to trust in the Euphrates or the Nile. They were not to look to Babylon or look to Egypt for their source. They were to trust God for their source alone and be girded to him like a belt. But because they have trusted in other rivers, or you can say other gods, God is going to give them entirely to them. And that's why you see this belt symbolism. God is showing them through Jeremiah exactly what they're going to be, what's going to happen. Now, the thing for you to remember is they are useless at this point. But they don't become useless when they go into Babylon. This is the point that you have got to hear, okay? Y'all listening? Yes. They don't become useless when they're in captivity. They were useless before captivity, and Babylon is actually the path of restoration for them. They are useless now, and God's going to send them into captivity, and that is how God chooses to uh, begin that process of restoration. This is the cycle of chastisement that we've been talking to you about. It always ends in restoration. It starts with, oh my God, I, we have become useless and now I have captivity going on in my life. I'm facing circumstances. But that is not the end because it's a cycle. It's coming back to restoration every time. And that exile is getting you there. Their present uselessness currently is being revealed to them. So that they can understand and recognize it and be restored. Come on now. That's the whole point of the belt. God's trying to show them. You are, you are like this belt that was once linen, clean, righteous deeds girded around my waist. But you are useless now. So I'm going to bury you where you have given your heart. But don't think that's the end. Because I will never let you stay that way. I will always have a holy belt girded around my loins. Amen. The point is that God is trying to get them to recognize that they're useless. Man, that's everything, isn't it? Yeah. God is just trying to get them to see it. 
if they would just see their condition, they might be able to look and live. They might be able to say, oh God, I am not the holy belt I was supposed to be. Restore me. And that is what God is trying to do inside them. Look, we're going to see this illustrated in Jeremiah 24. We're going to read another chapter within this tonight. As we read this chapter, pay attention, pay attention to the context. Pay attention to who is reigning. Pay attention to what is taking place and where the people of God are. Because this is going to, to reoccur as we dig in later on tonight. So we're going to read in Jeremiah 24. We're going to start in verse 1 and we're going to begin to extrapolate a few things about what's going on. This is awesome because Jeremiah 24 really begins to illuminate this cycle of chastisement and it begins to illuminate to us what exactly some of the ins and outs of what the Lord is getting at here and how exactly is he going to bring restoration to his people. So listen up as we begin in 24 verse 1. After Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah and the officials, the craftsmen and the artisans of Judah were carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So, is this before or is it after they were carried into exile? After. 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 Good. Keep that in context. Gold star. The Lord showed me two baskets of figs placed in front of the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like those that ripen early. The other basket had very poor figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. So you guys are formulating a picture. We're in front of the temple. There's two baskets, one with good figs, one with bad figs that can't even be eaten. Verse 3. Then the Lord asked me, what do you see, Jeremiah? Figs, I answered. The good ones are very good, but the poor ones are so bad they cannot be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Like these good figs, I regard as good the exiles from Judah. What? Whom I sent away from this place to the land of the Babylonians. Come on. You're seeing God's path to restoration through the process of exile. My eyes will watch over them for their good. I will bring them back to this land. Doesn't this language pump you up? Yes. It inspires you again for God's people. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. Amen. I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God. For they will return to me with all of their heart. Listen to the Lord's confidence in the plan that he has. Come on. Of course he's confident. He's seen it play out time after time in history. It's his plan and he's watched it work and he knows it's going to work again. Verse 8. But like the poor figs, which are so bad they cannot be eaten, says the Lord, so will I deal with Zedekiah, king of Judah, his officials, and the survivors from Jerusalem. Ah, the ones that didn't go into exile to Babylon. Whether they remain in this land or they live in Egypt, I will make them abhorrent and an offense to all the kingdoms of the earth, a reproach and a byword. An object of ridicule and cursing wherever I banish them. I will send the sword, famine, and plague against them until they are destroyed from the land I gave to them and their fathers. So this is amazing. We have two baskets and this exile to Babylon is all part of the Lord's plan. The difference between the good figs and the bad figs are how 
the individual responds to the Lord during exile. What does the individual do whenever he is brought into exile, brought into an unfamiliar territory, in a situation where there's crazy things happening all around, where the Lord seems absent? What does he do in that secret place? I'll tell you what the good figs do. They cry out to the Lord. They return back to their king. They say, Father, forgive us. They begin to do what Daniel did. As he was in the land, he begins to pray to the Lord, saying, Lord, I know what your plan is. I can see it. I'm going to lead the way in repentance. I'm going to lead the way back to you with my own heart first. That's a good word. The good figs, they're in a place where they have accepted God's judgment for what they did. Uh, I accept, God, what you bring because of my wicked actions. That is the beginning of the restoration process. And that's true for you and me too. Come on. Wouldn't you just think about these exiles because they are exiles that they're all bad? But God's clearly saying these ones in exile are good. Just because they're in exile doesn't mean they're bad. It's how they're responding to exile. So how do you define a bad fig then? How do you say, oh, that one's, that one's a bad fig? That's not even good for food at all. How do you define that? <laughs> the ones that do not accept the judgment of the Lord. Wow. They're the ones that through God's judgment, they're con- continually saying, God, you are the one with error in this. God, I don't deserve this. Lord, why Ooh. am I going through this? Father, why is it so hard? Those are the ones that are classified as bad figs. They refuse to acknowledge their own condition and repent. And instead, they just begrudgingly go through this exile and they are cut off from God's people. This is what we're talking about with the completion of the covenant cycle of chastisement. You're a good fig because you turn to the Lord. Because you say, Lord, I deserve what I'm getting right now. And because of that, I will praise you and represent you well through these trials. That is the attitude that we are going after tonight. Yeah, and we got to keep rolling. But you mean to tell me, Nick, Justin, that the good figs were not the ones sitting in the temple praising God that got to stay in Jerusalem? It was those during hardship and difficulty and the actual penalty and judgment of sin on their life? That when they rejoice, those are the ones that God considered good figs? Come on. I got one more passage on the subject that I think we should meditate on as we keep moving. Joshua 7, 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him praise. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold, weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Man, I want to tell you tonight that Achan has more faith than most Christians. The man sinned and he sinned in an extraordinary way that cost all of Israel something. But he also boldly repented and gave glory to God in a way that we often do not. Yes. And we grow and create this kind of tendency in the Lord as we expand. You're holy now. You've been made righteous. So you have the feeling that, uh, you know, it's not sociably acceptable for you to repent anymore. 
that you're really beyond that. You've been here long enough where that shouldn't be you. I want to tell you to take a lesson from Aiken's life tonight. Rob, if you agree with God and his judgments on your life, you will bring glory to God. David Hall, if you agree with God's assessment about your condition, you give glory to God. Yes. Joe, if you gladly accept the consequences of sinful decisions, you give glory to God. Saints, when we fight back and we disagree, we are giving way to the wickedness and the consequences of our sin. But when we rejoice in it and say, yes, Lord, I do deserve this, we're actually standing with God and are able to be made holy once again. And it's almost as if the entire Bible revolves around one plan and one way, and it is our requirement to stand, repent, and turn to that way. He will not allow religious fig leaves, whether it's on a Pharisee or it's a gentleman sitting in this church tonight. It does not matter how righteous you are on the outside. What God is looking for is a repentant and obedient heart. Let's see how this develops in 8 and 9, Brother Linton. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord says. In the same way, I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. So you might be thinking... That when God is talking about this belt is that he's going to throw it away completely. You know, you might be the type of person that when a judgment comes against you, you think to yourself, oh my God, God is done with me. He's throwing me away. And that's why I'm facing such criticism. That's why I'm facing this judgment and my sin is becoming apparent to everyone else because he's done with me. But what does he say? This is what the Lord says in the same way. I will ruin the pride of Judah. Not ruin the calling, ruin the pride. God is not trying to throw them away or their calling. He's trying to point out their condition that's putting them in this situation so that they can accept it and acknowledge it. God is trying to point out the thing that's killing them. And not because he wants to embarrass his bride in front of the whole world. He just wants them to see it. That's all God is trying to do in Israel, and that's all God's trying to do in you as well. Because remember, the end of the cycle is restoration. It's not to be thrown away in exile. It's to bring you to the place of acknowledgement so you can see where you need to grow. And let's pick up in verse 10 and go to 11. These wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who follow the stubbornness of their hearts and go after other gods to serve and worship them, will be like this belt, completely useless. For as a belt is bound around a man's waist, so I bound the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to me, declares the Lord, to be my people for my renown, praise and honor. But they have not listened. Yeah, so I don't know. You know, they're up here preaching these allegorical things, and I don't know if it really fits. Just so you see it, God is saying it himself. For as a belt is bound around a man's waist, so I bound the whole house of Israel And the whole house of Judah to me, declares the Lord. The belt is Israel. Now, the first time it was mentioned, it was around Aaron's waist, the high priest. The second time it was mentioned, it is around Jeremiah's waist, the prophet. This time it's mentioned, it is about God. And it was always about Israel being around God's waist, connected to him as he is a priest. Look, in Isaiah 11, we read it earlier, God is going to make them a truthful, righteous belt. They're not righteous right now, but He will make them. 
when it says that he wraps righteousness around his waist, it's literally saying the Messiah will wear Israel as a righteous garment. He is going to do that for them. The truth is, is if they would give glory to God through this covenant cycle of chastisement, they would become this right now. And they do become this eventually. Ezekiel and Daniel are good examples of men who are becoming that. And one day, the whole nation will become that righteous belt around his waist. Amen? Amen. And let's go to verse 12 and uh, read through 14. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said. Every wineskin should be filled with wine. And if they say to you, don't we know that every wineskin should be filled with wine? Then tell them, this is what the Lord says. I am going to fill with drunkenness all who live in this land, including the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all those living in Jerusalem. I will smash them one against the other, fathers and sons alike, declares the Lord. I will allow no pity or mercy or compassion to keep me from destroying you. Oh my God, the Lord is talking about filling vessels with wine. <laughs> oh. Anybody come from a denominational background like I do? Oh my goodness. The Lord, he's going to make his people drunk. How could he do that? Yeah, I am so thankful that those denominational, uh, ridiculous views on passages like this that twist them and say, oh yeah, you're not supposed to drink wine or any other fermented drink. I'm so thankful that those are completely broken in this house. Wine, yes. wine was always meant to be a blessing from the Lord. Come on, it was always meant to be something uh, that was used by God to reward and to be celebratory for his people to get together and to enjoy his presence and the brotherhood and uh, be, just being together with one another to enjoy that time. So when he brings these kind of uh, pictures into view, it should perk your ears up a little bit. While it's supposed to be a blessing, the wine the Lord has given them in this passage, it was corrupted. But let me tell you why. It wasn't the Lord that corrupted the wine. It was their own wickedness Mm. that corrupted the wine. Now, talk about a, a denominational argument right there. Is it the wine that's unholy? Or is it the people that are partaking in it their own corruption making that wine unholy and corrupt. Well, of course, we know it's the latter because the wine was always meant to be a gift, holy unto the Lord. Here, the word wineskin in this passage, it can be translated also as jar, to be translated as bottle. It's actually a container, and the context in this passage determines what type it is. It lets us know that Jeremiah is referring to the type of jar that can be smashed. That's, that's what we read in the latter part of these verses. Israel, they were vessels designed by God that could hold the pure wine of God or hold the sins of the world if they chose to walk away from Him. Wow. And it depended on how they dealt with the blessing of God. If they took the blessing of God and they went back to the beginning of the cycle again with a pure spirit and a devotion to Him and a desire to be holy, or if they took the blessing of God and went the selfish route and continued on that vicious cycle. Mm. While their present situation right here was useless, the Lord is able to purify them and He's able to fill them 
with a supernatural kind of wine. Yeah. That reminded us of a certain story in John chapter 2. It was a wedding in Cana, in Galilee. Jesus took the same type of jars. These were ceremonial washing jars. These jars contain the filth of ceremonial washings. What happens when you go to wash Whew. in a ceremony? Well, That's of course, you. all the nastiness that was all over you, it goes in the water that, were, that is in those jars. They call it gray water. <laughs> so they had all the filth. Gray water. They had all the filth and the nastiness of the people in those jars. And what in the world did Messiah do? He turned that filth and that disgusting nastiness into the best wine that anybody had ever tasted. Let me tell you, he's going to do it again. He's going to do the same thing for Israel again. They were created to be beautiful, but they corrupted themselves. They took God's blessing and they corrupted it. Jesus took something that was empty and he made it glorious. And it was the very first sign. Hey, the first miracle that I perform, I want the whole world to know that I'm going to take Israel, even though she has defiled herself, and I'm going to make her pure again. I'm going to make her something that all of the nations will be able to enjoy and be blessed by. He's going to take the bride that could not cleanse herself and he's going to make her the finished product. Let's Come on. continue in verse 15. Hear and pay attention. Do not be arrogant, for the Lord has spoken. Now, saints, this is the third time that pride or arrogance has been mentioned. The problem is not their outward adornment. It's not their speech. It's the internal condition of their heart that does not want to admit their guilt so that they can be transformed. I'm happy to tell you that the prophet Zechariah lets us know that there is a day that they will look upon the one they have pierced, admit their guilt, and they will rejoice at his coming. Come on. They will mourn for what had happened, but they will live and be that righteous belt around him in joy. Come on. Now, the time in between, though, the meantime, so to speak, when the judgment of God is upon a land and upon a people... Yeah, we know nothing about that. (laughs) But we have not seen the coming Messiah. Verse 16 gives us the answer. And if you listen closely, we may have already hinted at it. (laughs) Give glory. One more time, Brother Linton. Give glory to the Lord, your God, before he brings the darkness, before your feet stumble on the darkness. You hope for light, but he will turn it to thick darkness and change it to deep gloom. Oh, come on, saints. He did not say, give glory to God and you won't go into darkness. He didn't say, give glory to God and you won't see the darkening on the hills. He said, give glory to God before it happens because it's coming. Amen. They've already crossed the line. It's too late for that. But what they can do is praise their God in the middle of it. Yes. The only thing that you can do now when you're sitting under the judgment of sin is worship your God in the midst of it and at least put a oh, smile on it. <laughs> Praise Him in the middle of it. Say He is holy. He is righteous even if you are not. Hey, look. Doing look. so will make you a righteous fig. It will be the fruit that God has been cultivating, that He has been looking for. Saints, it is not just Israel. It is you, Christian. You've crossed the line in areas that bring about temporal consequences in your life. It happens. We're supposed to learn from it. But the worst thing that you could possibly do is turn and bemoan it. Act as if you are a victim. 
There is no victimhood in Christ. You are a son of God, born again. Give glory to him in the middle of it. You will prove yourself to be the fruit that our Messiah fought, died for. Listen, as we go down this road, we have more ground to cover. I want you to remember this. God has not treated you unfairly. Don't let it come out in your thoughts. Don't let it come out in your speech. And don't let it come out in your family. God has been more than good to us. And if we're experiencing difficulty, let it be for Christ's sake. If you're experiencing punishment for your stupid decisions, let it be to the glory of God anyway. I want to read to you Luke 19, and then Justin can comment on it. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known that this day would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children, within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So Judah just read a passage about Jesus, and it's going to tie in in a little bit to an amazing thing about Jeremiah. And we're going to read that. But it's beautiful to see Jeremiah respond in such a way, especially after what God just said. Give glory to the Lord your God. And you're going to see a similarity between Jeremiah and Jesus. But I I just want to go back to something Judah said in just a sec, uh, what he said a second ago. Give glory to God in your circumstance. That is like a survival kit for you, Christian, in your walk. Look, we're saying this right now. Give glory to God in hard circumstances, but you know where I see this the most in all of you, myself included, and in my family? The moment that you know that you've sinned, how do you act? The moment that you know that you have disobeyed the Lord, how do you act? Do you want to beat yourself down? Do you want to sit there and moan and cry because you've been caught? Do you want to sit there and get down on yourself because your perfect track record is broken? The best thing for you to do. I'm not just talking about hard times in your workplace or circumstances that came out of nowhere. I'm talking about when you sin and you know it. The best thing for you to do is say, I deserve what I get for this, but God is still good to me. He saved me when I was a complete sinner, and he will still save me through this. Look, some of you are nodding your heads because you know what I'm talking about, and others, you've got your head down a little bit because... Some of us have a little bit of a problem at least acknowledging sin. The best thing you can do when you're sin is to acknowledge the goodness of God. I messed up. He's not wrong. He's still good. And yes, I am frail. And yes, I'm miserable. But he is going to restore me. I promise if you do that, your sins will not become huge potholes that you fall into. They'll become lessons for you and you'll learn from them. Amen. Now we're going to see how Jeremiah responds to that. Linton, get verse 17. So Jeremiah is saying something here that you got to catch. He's not speaking like he did in chapter 12. You remember when we covered that? Jeremiah's like, judge them, God. Get them. Burn them all. Take them away from here. And he's saying that because they're starting to turn on him. Jeremiah's changed a little bit since then. He's mournful because he knows what will happen. He's heard God say, 
give glory before the darkness comes. And he knows that many are not going to do that. He's mournful because he knows what will happen and what this means for his people. They sinned in secret. So God hid a belt in secret. But Jeremiah's not sinning in secret. He is weeping in secret. While they are sinning in secret, Jeremiah is weeping in secret. And that hidden belt is revealed. Those are the jars that are revealed. And his weeping will be revealed to all of his family. Their sin is going to be revealed. But also his weeping is going to be revealed. And honestly, they couldn't see this because they were sinning. Have you ever had a grandmother that prayed for you your whole life and you just didn't know it? Because you're too wicked to even see it. This is what's happening in Jeremiah. They can't tell that he's weeping. He's doing it in secret because they are sinning in secret and it's hardening them. But now he is announcing this. He's giving glory to God, not crying over the judgment. I want you to get it. He's not crying because it's going to be bad and everything's going to be taken away. He's giving glory to God through this. But he's crying over their condition, not the judgment in general. This is him siding with God, mourning over their present state. Now take that with what Judah just read about Jesus. Jesus is doing the same thing and he's saying, Jesus is weeping and saying, now it is hidden from your eyes. You can't see how I feel about you. They will dash you to the ground. You did not recognize the time of God's coming. In verse 16 of Jeremiah, God said that he would bring a thick darkness. You know what that, the same wording is in Genesis 1. The tohu vavohu. They can't avoid it at all. But if they give glory to God, he will transform them through it. And Jesus knows that. Jesus is the answer. And he's right here saying, if you just recognize that I would transform you. But you could not see it because you were too busy sinning in secret. Church, recognize it's the time. It is the time to get right with God. Don't feed secret sin because that will blind you to the opportunity that you have to get it right. Let's continue in verse 18, Lenzon. Say to the king and to the queen mother, come down from your throne, for your glorious crown will fall on your heads. Man, this is such, such an interesting study. If you want to get into it, look in the interlinear, look in the Hebrew. There's a, a suggestion here that it's not just about earthly kings and queens. The word principalities is actually in this scripture, but you can't tell if you're reading it in English. This scripture is actually saying that the principalities in the heavens are going to be dethroned as well because of the Lord's wrath. On a separate note, we want to give you a little bit of background from 2 Kings 24. We're going to hop around here. It's going to be 24. I'm going to read 1 through 3. I'm going to read verse 8. And I'm going to read verse 12. So just listen to me for a moment. 1 through 3. During Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded the land. And Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. But then he changed his mind and rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord sent Babylonian, Aramean, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against him. He sent them to destroy Judah in accordance with the word of the Lord, proclaimed by his servants, the prophets. So, who did we say is reigning here? Jehoiachin. Right? It's Jehoiakim's son who's actually reigning. And I'll prove that to you in the next passage. Verse 8. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Nehushta. 
Wow. That has eerie similarities <laughs> to something yeah. that we've been talking about over the last couple weeks. I've known a few. Yeah, Nehushta, the queen mother. Wonder what she got herself into. Daughter of Elnathan, she was from Jerusalem. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father had done. And now verse 12. Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, his attendants, his nobles, and his officials, all surrendered to him. So, this is the cycle of covenant chastisement that we've been talking about. Jeremiah is prophesying about these occurrences right now, but actually it's in Jeremiah 24 that we read earlier where this actually takes place. Jeremiah is in the beginning stages of this uh, covenant chastisement cycle. But because we know from Jeremiah 24 that it ends with some good figs, we can, we can be satisfied that God's process will have the effect that he says Hallelujah. that it will. Yeah. Jehoiachin and his queen mother, they prove themselves in these passages to be bad figs themselves. Why is that? Because they refuse to even acknowledge their own state. Mm. The first step of this process is an acknowledgement of where you are and then a mighty bringing glory to the king. Let's continue in verse 19. Guys, as we read 19, I want you to hear some familiar verbiage because we're going to compare it to some other places in Jeremiah. And on that note, with what Nick just said, many times in your Christian walk, do not relegate what he just said to the first day that you got born again. It's that God of your perpetual deliverance. That perpetual recognition and repentance is what will bring you into good fruit. So listen to 19 through 21 and hear reminiscent words. There will be no one to open them. All of Judah will be carried into exile, carried completely away. Pause there. Jeremiah 4, 27. The whole land will be ruined, though I will not completely destroy it. It goes on to say, I have decided I will not turn back. The Lord says that he is going to carry them away completely, as in he's going to finish the task that has been set into motion. Get the next verse, brother. Those who are coming from the north. Where's the flock that was entrusted to you? The sheep of which you boasted. Now again, this is in reference to the leaders that we just covered in Kings. But in Jeremiah 4, verse 29, it describes the horsemen coming from the north and that all the towns are going to be deserted and no one will live in them. The flock will be scattered. No sheep left on the pasture. Get the next verse, brother. What will you say when the Lord sets over you those you cultivated as your special allies. Ooh. Will pain not grip you like that of a woman in labor? Special allies. And I, I don't pretend to know what all of that means, <laughs> but uh, there were some favors traded for military strength. Jeremiah 4, picking up in the latter part of 30, your lovers despise you. They seek your life. You remember that from earlier? Yeah. yeah. The special allies... The special lovers, they're not going to deliver. They're actually going to seek Israel's life. Verse 31, I hear a cry as of a woman in labor. A groan as of one bearing her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion grasping for breath, stretching out her hand saying, Alas, I am fainting. My life is given over to murderers. This imagery is consistent through the prophets. We're showing you a comparison in Jeremiah 
But you can see it in Zechariah. You can see it in Hosea. You can see it in Habakkuk. It's because it is the pattern, the cycle. And if you look closely, the New Testament is filled with it as well. You just didn't know that it was there. This is an indication of the place that Israel finds themselves in, in this pattern. But the pattern will come to completion to a point where they are permanently cured, never to repeat it again. Amen. Let's get verse 22. And if you ask yourself, why has this happened to me? It is because of your many sins that your skirts have been torn off and your body mistreated. Don't you love it when God tells you what's going to happen, then gives you an answer to a question you might ask because it happened like he said. This is, this is what God's doing. If you ask yourself, why has this happened? This is what I will say to you. Because of your many skins, that your many sins, that your skirts have been torn off. Thank God I got that right the second time. Look, I want you to catch something here. It's not obvious to the belt at this point that it was useless. God is saying it's useless, but the belt can't see it for themselves that they are useless. The belt was revealed at the captivity to be useless. It was revealed at the captivity because, well, obviously God's bringing judgment. That's when it's undeniably clear when God brings a judgment. Oh, there's something wrong with me. But the truth is, is it was useless before. And the captivity was the first chance for something good to come from it. You get what I'm saying? At the time of judgment, that doesn't mean you become useless at the time of judgment. Or you don't become a sinner when it's revealed that you're a sinner. You were before a sinner, before it was ever revealed or a judgment was brought down. When a judgment is brought down, it's not the finality of your calling. It's the first time there's an opportunity for something good to come out of this situation. It's the first time you're going, oh, wait, I'm getting corrected. I did not even know this was there. Thank God now I can see I can fight. Now that I can see it, I can do something about it. Here he is saying that because they were already sinful, he is going to show them what they are failing to recognize. He's going to be faithful to show them what's going on. He's going to use the lovers that they have been relying on to show them. So if you've got a problem with greed, God will use money to show you your problem. Kind of to that effect. This is like Laodicea. They are saying that they are not blind. And yet Jesus is telling them, you are blind and I'm going to show you how blind you are. This is their true, true state. But they have not seen it before this point, And now God is going to reveal it in an undeniable way. Anytime there is a chastisement, this is the encouraging part of this. Anytime there's a chastisement, you'd be doing yourself very wrong and a bad disservice to your, your relationship to the Lord and just to yourself to act like it's the devil. To act like, well, I don't know what's going on. The devil's just messing with me today. You know? Pulling my leg, pushing my buttons. Anytime there's a chastisement, you can't act like it's the devil. We have to give God the glory and recognize that we have been like this and we have not seen it. It's okay to realize when so- this happened to me Sunday. I got a correction from a brother. And I'm like, I didn't see it. But I have to acknowledge that the reason why it's this way is because I have been doing this for a while 
and I haven't seen it. The key to getting this victory is just acknowledging, I have not seen this condition in me. Thank you for showing me this. Now that I know, I can fight it. Not, well, you know, I just don't think the church likes me because I get corrected all the time. That's not the way to victory, folks. When you're getting judged, it's God showing you something. Come on. I'm highlighting something Amen. to get right. It's another day for victory. So uh, with that in mind, think of how encouraging verse 23 is. Well, I've never seen a leopard, and I've never seen this happen in any other way. But I want to say that Mark 10.27 says, Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. It may seem impossible, I just can't change. But how did you get here? Because God did the impossible in you already. He can do it again. Made it through the door. It's a step. Hey, let's pick up in verse 24. chapter 14 here. But before we get into chapter 14, we want to walk you through what has happened in chapter 13. Okay? 13.1. We have a belt introduced. Symbolizing Israel. Something that was supposed to be clean. But there was no water involved. So it was impure. It was shown to be unclean. Now, the Lord is coming out, and He's making it absolutely plain as day for everybody to see. It's definitely unclean. In 14.1, which is the verse that we are about to read, the Lord is speaking about a drought in the land. So, we made that connection from you, with you from the beginning. 13.1, the belt itself was not allowed to touch water. And in 14.1, there is a drought in the land. The land is not touching water at all. Well, well, isn't there a disparity there? The land's not touching water in 14, but we're talking about the nation of Israel in 13. Aren't those one and the same, Max 2 class? Okay, we're going to keep rolling then. God is going to do to the whole nation what Jeremiah did to the belt. Woo! As we move forward, I want you to make sure that you keep the parallels that we saw in Amos 8 and 9 at the forefront of your mind. We're going to hit them again. We're going to hit them in a positive way that is going to be an encouragement to you. But first, we need to hit Jeremiah 12, and I'm going to read 14 through 17, and Judah's going to comment on it for us. This is what the Lord says. As for all my wicked neighbors who seize the inheritance I gave my people Israel, I will uproot them from their lands, and I will uproot the house of Judah from among them. But after I uproot them, I will again have compassion, and will bring each of them back to his own inheritance and his own country. Pause there for just a moment for me, brother. Everyone, you read this, and then you miss the significance of it. You know why I know that? 
Because I missed it. Yeah. Over and over again. To my wicked neighbors who seize the inheritance I gave my people. Who's his people, saints? Israel. One more time, a little louder. Israel. I gave my people. Keep Reread uh, 14 and 15 for me one more time, Nick. Got it. This is what the Lord says. As for all my wicked neighbors who seize the inheritance I gave my people Israel, I will uproot them from their lands. Plural. And I will uproot the house of Judah from among them. But after I uproot them, I will again have compassion and will bring each of them back to his own inheritance and his own country. Saints, as we continue, we're talking about Gentiles here. Back to their own country, own inheritance. Speaking about a restoration that is more than just Israel. It's about an inclusion, alluding to what God spoke to Abraham originally. Yes. Keep going, brother. And if they learn well the ways of my people and swear by my name, saying as surely as the Lord lives, even as they once taught my people to swear by Baal, then they will be established among my people. But if any nation does not listen, I will completely uproot and destroy it, declares the Lord. In the middle of Israel's darkest hour, so to speak, it's speaking about Gentiles being grafted in and learning to speak the name of the Lord because of righteous Israel. Come on. Saints, this is extraordinary. There has never been a time that the lamp of Israel or the hope of Abraham has gone out. It is continuous. And it is the hope that we stand in today. Saints, essentially, this is Amos 8 and 9 in a nutshell. Amos 8, we have the impending invasion, famine breaking out on the land. And then in Amos 9, we see that God is going to shake Israel like a grain sieve. Where Chaff is falling out and good grain is staying. The good figs or the good grain or the good fruit will survive the shaking. And Peter seems to speak about this. Why he's doing this, he's going to bring the Gentiles that understand their condition into Israel's blessing as well. Just like he originally promised Abraham. The apostles in Acts 15 understood Amos as the rebuilding of David's tent and Messiah. And the Gentiles being included which is why they issued the verdict that they did based upon the scriptures. And you want to understand the times that we live in, we need to look to the old paths. That's how the men of the Gospels did it. These events in Jeremiah foreshadow what God will do for the whole world, even during Israel's darkest hours. How could this be true if it doesn't happen for Israel first, though? See, if they're not going to return from the exile, if they're not his holy garment, then what is it you're being bound to? You would be bound over to a wicked and damned people. But praise the living God, that's not what you're being grafted into. Now listen, in very plain speech, (laughs) this drought sucks. Yes, it's in the notes and I'm reading it that way. We like that. It's going to be really, really bad. The punishment that we've been speaking about giving God glory in is not a pleasant one. And we did not expect it to be alleviated. We did not expect it to go away just because you prayed a prayer at the altar. You're going to have to bear up under the circumstances that we created for ourselves. But we will find God's power at work in our weakness, making us into 
good figs. Now, in light of God's power at work in men who are weak, we have 32 minutes to cover an entire chapter. So we're going to hit some ground with some pace. Okay? Can you do that with us? You're Bible students. You can consume a few verses at once, right? Yeah. Brother Linton, pick up in verse 1 of chapter 14 and get us all the way down through six verses. In Babylon, they had the Euphrates, and their gardens were the envy of the world. Have you ever heard of the hanging gardens of Babylon? They had huge sources of irrigation and life in the desert because of the rivers there. Now consider that in contrast to Israel's water source. It's not the only river in Israel, but it's the only major river. And being that the only major river is at most in normal times probably 30 feet across. I would have to say that pales in comparison to the other nations. Almost like God chooses the foolish to shame the wise. But we'll, we'll go there a different day. Israel's water source comes from Hermon and descends into Galilee, which is the lowest freshwater lake in the world. And then it descends into the Dead Sea, which is the lowest point on the planet Earth. Wow. Now, when you're thinking about the Jordan, both sides of it, as the river runs north and south, Directly to the east is giant mountains. Directly to the west, more giant mountains. The whole thing is a rift valley and it's surrounded by giant mountains. So you can imagine how hard it would be to use that for irrigation. Anybody ever try to siphon gas out of a truck? You've got to have some gravity. It's kind of hard to do that when you've got to go thousands of feet up in the air. They cannot irrigate from the Jordan River. And God did that for a purpose. God intended for them to rely on Him and Him alone and not a river like the surrounding nations. The truth is, is when they depended on Him, He took care of them in supernatural ways. The rest of the nations can't say that at all because they got a big river. But when they depended on Him, He sent them rain in the seasons. Man, now you know how important it is when the prophets don't speak about no rain coming. They have nothing because they're dependent on Him sending rain. Here, God is showing them what happens when they refuse Him. When they refuse Him and begin to want to serve the gods of the river of Babylon or the gods of the river of Egypt, He's going to show them how powerful really those gods are. Those gods can't send rain like their God can. He's going to show them what happens when they depend on other sources. This is the whole symbolism of the belt being taken to the river and then the drought. The truth is, they're going to see their real condition when they abandon them. And the same thing happens to us. When you abandon the Lord, the only source of your divine providence, the only source of everything that you have, He's going to show you what happens when you abandon Him. 
He will take away all those things that he's giving you. He'll begin to reduce them little by little until you realize, hey, what am I depending on here? Am I depending on something else? And that's why I'm not being provided for? God will do that. In this passage, all of the nobles down to the donkeys are going to suffer. That's bad. The whole point is is that in every area of Israel's society, God is going to cause a suffering, but it's not for the suffering alone. It's to show them. You're depending on the wrong source. Remember, you have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and you've dug your own cistern. I want you to see that so you can come right back to the living source I am. That is the point. So let's go to verse 7 and read down to verse 9. Although our sins testify against us, O Lord, do something for the sake of your name. For our backsliding is great. We have sinned against you. O hope of Israel, its Savior in times of distress, why are you like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who only stays at night? Why are you like a man taken by surprise, like a warrior powerless to save you are among us, O Lord, and we bear your name. Do not forsake us. Do you remember what God said about the belt earlier? Does anybody remember? I put you around my waist so that you can bear my name. Now look at Jeremiah's response here. O Lord, do something for the sake of your name. Look down at verse 9. You are among us, O Lord. We bear your name. Do not forsake us. God's name is linked to his people. God's people are linked to his name. It's a beautiful relationship. Ezekiel 36 is a passage that we must read. We wanted to do a big, long scripture string at this point right here. But Ezekiel 36 encompasses everything that we wanted to say. Amen. Starting in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things. Wow. But for the sake of my holy name. Wow. Which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. When is Ezekiel writing these things? Well, it's right in the time period of the exile that we're discussing. Come on. Verse 23. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. The name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. I want to take a moment. Just for, just for a sec, just a moment, and ask you guys a question. When you screw up, is your first thought, I'm profaning my name, or is your first thought, I'm profaning the name of the Lord that I represent? Oh, dear God. What comes to mind as your first knee-jerk kind of reaction? Now, we want to make sure that you are judging yourself rightly tonight. That tonight, when... When you go off the ancient path, when you make a decision that was based in selfishness and you're taking advantage of the abundance of God, what is it that comes to mind first? I want to encourage you right now tonight. Let it be that the name of the Lord that is upon you, that your position with Him as 
right around his waist in an intimate setting with him, that that is the very thing that defines who you are and what you represent as his representative on the earth. (laughs) This cycle of chastisement for Israel paints a beautiful picture of a cycle that we go through to this day as God's people. It is always going to produce the correct results when our heart is the heart of Jeremiah. Lord, not for my name, not for anybody's name, but for the sake of your name, would you please bring me through this to bring glory to your name? Whatever it takes, whatever sacrifices need to be made, whatever hardships that I need to go through, for your name, I want to be restored in a way that glorifies you. It doesn't matter how long it takes. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if your situation is taking years, years to work itself out. God will make sure that he gets glory through it as we take this position. God with Israel, he's not going to do away with them completely because of his name, but he will cause them to repent. He is such a good father and such a good husband to his people. Think back to the figs. Think back to the good figs and the bad figs and the baskets. He is faithful to remove the bad, and he is faithful to continue to reveal the good. Yeah. And he is faithful to do it inside of each one of us as well. Come on, man. Grab a hold of the good, repent for the bad, and let's move forward together in glorifying the name of our King. Yeah. Verse 10. This is what the Lord says about this people. They greatly love to wander. They do not restrain their feet. So the Lord does not accept them. He will now remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. They greatly love to wander. Man, in English, that really just doesn't quite do it for me. Uh, I have a kid or two that like to wander off, so we have to keep eyes on them. few of you have kids that like to wander off and you don't keep eyes on them. You know who you are. Totally true. Wander could also be translated wavering, as in like a reed in the wind, as in like James 1 where devotion or prayer are wavering because of doubt and unbelief. They greatly love to waver between two opinions, is what he's saying. It's not the Lord that is wavering, it's them. The reality is that they're being blown around by their own sinful desires and being drugged astray by them. They're tossed back and forth about in the waves because they waver. There's nothing in them that is solid, that has learned to stand the test of time, to glorify God in difficulty and during times of abundance. Hear me, mature Christians. Their ailment was not that they couldn't profess the Lord, that they could not repeat His Scripture. It was not that they could not hear from Him. It was that they greatly loved to waver in the midst of difficulty and between two opinions. This is proof in the context of the passage, that they hated the Lord. Their own deeds said it regardless of how they spoke. They acted as if they were with Him while wavering in their own hearts constantly. But not to worry. There's a cycle of chastisement that will fix it if we respond to it. I mean, they respond to it. The good figs will bring God glory. And there is a great sieve that is going to shake and cause those... that waver to fall out. 
into the fire. And others that will be proven to be good fruit. Listen, as the evening draws on, we need to get to verse 11 through 14. I simply want to state that there's a good bit more wandering or wavering in our hearts than we would like to admit. And we ought to address it with sobriety, alertness of mind, readiness even of armament. You pick up in 11 through 14 for me, Linton. Then the Lord said to me, Do not pray for the well-being of this people. Although they fast, I will not listen to their cry. Though they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Instead, I will destroy them with the sword, famine, and plague. But I said, Ah, sovereign Lord, the prophets keep telling them, You will not see the sword or suffer famine. Indeed, I will give you lasting peace in this place. Then the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. They are prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions of their own mind. So let's put this in context for a second. God's saying, I will not listen to their cry. Man, I don't know about you, but what kind of father won't listen to his son's cry? Except how about when it becomes necessary for a father to not listen to his son's cry? I don't know about most of you, but I know there comes a point when the baby goes to bed, it's time to leave them in bed even though they cry. Because they just have to learn to go to sleep. The Lord is saying that he's not going to listen to their cry. The Lord's not going to relent on his consequences because this is the necessary stripping away so that they can see their condition. This is the stripping away that God wants to have in their life. And he's not going to pull back from it just so they can uh, feel the fire a little bit and then go, oh, praise God, I don't feel it anymore. No, he's going to drive it into completion so that they can, they can be stripped away and they can actually see who they really are. i got to say that is one of the rarest things that I have ever seen, seen in a Christian. Somebody who can accurately see the way that they really are. And to be honest with you, a lot of us are afraid to see that. Am I, am I not telling the truth? A lot of us are a little bit afraid to look deep into the well of your soul and see what actually is there. But I got to say, there's a certain kind of freedom that happens when you are not afraid to look into that, acknowledge it, wrestle with it, and come to grips that you are what you are. And by the grace of God, he is making you into what he wants to make you into. Even though you don't see it now like Israel sees it, he will drive this into completion and all the whining and everything like that. He just won't listen (laughs) because there's a consequence. There has to be a consequence or else the whole belt will be ruined. Church, listen, there has to be consequences in Israel and there has to be consequences in your life as well. Because if not, if God just lets you do everything and get away with it and and just not suffer at all, then we would become the most horrible people in the world. And quite frankly, that's what's happened to the rest of the church. They don't want to face the consequences. And that is That is why Islam is rising up as the next world religion, because people are seeing that this actually has some uh, sort of pathway to becoming what feels to be holy, even though it's not. Christianity has just shucked away the consequences regardless, because we don't want to face any pain. When there is a cycle of sin, consequence is necessary. And that's what we're talking about in our covenant of secular secular. Cycle of chastisement. When this is a problem, and to be honest with you, 
who, who of us that it's not a problem in? Is sin a cycle in anybody's life in this room? Well, it is in mine too. And consequence is a part of that cycle, and it's necessary because it's leading you to restoration. The goal here is to give glory to God during the consequence. Not hide it, not pretend like it doesn't exist, not cry because of the consequence, but give glory to God and own it, man. Stand up and say, this is what it is, but God is making me into something. Give glory to God during the consequence so you can succeed the cycle of chastisement. If you don't give glory to God through that, he will keep you in that cycle of chastisement until eventually, well, you see what happens. But just as a quick note, I want you to see something cool. This cycle of chastisement is not just in the book of Jeremiah alone. You can see it in Solomon's prayer. Yeah. You remember when we studied that in the book of Chronicles? Yeah. Lord, when this happens and the people cry out to you, listen to them. Lord, when this happens, Lord, if they don't listen and this happens and then they do this, please respond to them. You can see a cycle in Solomon's prayer because he knew that it would be there. You know where you can see it the most, though? In the book of Revelation. What if, and I'm just saying a strong what if, what if the seven seals in the book of Revelation are actually God trying to get the world to repent, but another seal is coming because they won't repent? Huh. How, what if it was a cycle of chastisement that was led wow. or supposed to be for restoration, but the people say, no, I would rather have the mark of a beast on my hand than acknowledge that I am a sinner. I kind of think that they have similarities, but I'll let you guys study it in your own time. They do. <laughs> it, it's a little bit of playful banter. So uh, let's pick up in verse 15, and uh, we're going to read down to 18, and we're going to get yeah. into uh, some amazing things about how God is feeling about the situation, because, you know, we want to know how our daddy feels when he punishes us, right? Yeah. The most of the time, the worst part is they're like, do you like doing this to me or is it hard for you? Well, we're going to see how God feels about this. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the prophets who are prophesying in my name. I did not send them. Yet they are saying, no sword or famine will touch this land. Those same prophets will perish by the sword and famine. And the people they are prophesying to will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and sword. There will be no one to bury them or their wives, their sons or their daughters. I will pour out on them the calamity they deserve. Speak this word to them. Let my eyes overflow with tears night and day without ceasing for my virgin daughter. My people have suffered a grievous wound, a crushing blow. If I go into the country, I see those slain by the sword. If I go into the city, I see the ravages of famine. Both prophet and priest have gone to a land they know not. This is the Lord speaking here in this passage. It's the Lord who's speaking to Jeremiah and he say, Hey, go tell the people that I said this. My eyes have tears in them. I'm crying over the state of my people. I'm crying over my chosen. I'm crying over the ones that are supposed to be mine. Never how the Lord wanted his linen belt to look. Never wanted it to be destroyed. Never wanted it to be rendered useless. 
never wanted it to be sold in the first place. Like Genesis chapter 6, all over again, in a different cycle. The Lord's heart is filled with pain in this moment, and we can see how He's reacting. It's heart-wrenching, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's difficult to read, thinking about the Lord looking at His people like this and crying over them, much like Jesus looking over Jerusalem. Come on. Weeping over Jerusalem. The same heart of the Father was seen perfectly in the heart of the Son over Jerusalem, saying, I, I spoke truth to you. I spoke, I tried to give you the truth that would give you the character to be the linen belt that I created you to be, but you rejected that truth and you decided to go your own way. And now I have to take you through the cycle again. And I have to punish you this way. It's something that I'm going to do because I love you enough to bring you through that cycle so that you can be restored. I can see the hope on the other side, but it doesn't hurt any less right now. It doesn't affect me any less. Jesus staring over Jerusalem, He's weeping over it. It doesn't affect Him any less in that moment, knowing that eventually He's going to come back as a conquering King, and He's going to get His vengeance, and He's also going to get His people and His land. Mm -hmm. But in that moment, it hurts. Mm -hmm. He had created Israel to be the nation that all the others would be able to see and to be blessed by. And in this moment, they're doing everything but their function. Silver lining right now in this passage is that holy branch of Jeremiah. How he is listening to the Lord. He is understanding what the Lord wants to say in his time, in his season. He is grasping it and he is faithfully delivering the message of the Lord in the face of all kinds of opposition. Verse 19 is a continuation of this, and we're going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. We have some really amazing notes at the end of this chapter that we want to get to. Have you rejected Judah completely? Well, I hope not. Have you despised Zion? Why have you afflicted us so that we cannot be healed? We hope for peace, but no good has come. For a time of healing, but there is only terror. Oh Lord, we acknowledge our wickedness and the guilt of our fathers. We have indeed sinned against you. For the sake of your name, do not despise us. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember your covenant with us and do not break it. Do any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain? Do the skies themselves send down showers? No! It is you, O Lord our God. Therefore, our hope is in you. For you are the one who does all this. My hope, as we're nearing a close, is to give you a window into Jeremiah's life. You've heard a lot of details about cycles and patterns in Israel. The brutal reality of the prayer that he just prayed is going to show up in chapter 15, verse 1. Jeremiah is wrestling with something that we must all wrestle with. The difference between the state of a generation and the end outcome of a holy root. And what God will go on to further reveal to Jeremiah is the outcome of the holy root in some of the clearest, strongest passages that exist in the Word. 
about the future restoration of Israel, about the renewal or the new covenant that is coming, that they will be the first and foremost participators in. But he's in that meantime, that Biden time, (laughs) where he knows that God is good, he is just. But all he sees around him is death, famine, and plague, and he's wondering if it's going to snuff out the lamp of Israel. I want to tell you tonight that the astounding answer is no. Even if this generation is burned, is put in a sieve, there will be a holy remnant. And Jeremiah himself will wrestle through this and come to the place where he sees into the future and realizes what God will rebuild. But he had to stare death in the face and the reality of the current situation and give God glory in it. Saints, nothing less is required of you. Nothing less is required of the three of us. We live in days where judgment is descending. There are cycles in our life in multiple areas that we have to recognize and that we have to stand and give him glory in. We're working to multiply our ministries right now. And there's a reason we started with gratefulness before we got here. Yeah. If you're not experiencing it already, in whatever area of responsibility you have been given, you will experience an increase of adversity, difficulty, and God's refining fire in your life. Oh, yeah. It'll show up in your home. It'll show up in your children in the most sensitive ways that you didn't want it to happen. <laughs> but this is God's process. This is how he makes us into a holy people. But it requires that we give him the glory that is due his name. Because it's his name that is at stake. It has nothing to do with ours. You gave up your name the day that you followed him. It's time that we embrace the name that we do fight for. Man, it's a good name. No matter how we reflect upon the past, the reality is you had a wretched name prior to the time that you met him. I spent a few days over the weekend considering what my character and body of work and representation was prior to meeting him. Man, that was an awful sight. Thank God he is still producing something new in me as I turn and learn to give him glory as he refines my life. Jeremiah wrestled through these circumstances, wrestled through the cycle, wrestled through the chastisement, And he is crying out to the living God for insight into the times that he lives in and what the future is of his people. Man, do we need a word like that? I love Jeremiah. In so many ways, he is like Jesus, feeling the pain of the circumstances. Is it possible to do it another way? But no, it isn't. So both Jeremiah and Jesus do exactly what the Father said. We have to understand the chastisements are always intended to lead to restoration. And we must stand in these circumstances. Yes. We must stand and there is no other place that we can stand. Yes. The world around us is bending and breaking and wandering and going all over the place. And there is no hope found in it and that will become increasingly evident. The truth is it already is if you have eyes to see. Come on. This is how we become good figs. This is how we become the wheat. This is how we become the oaks of righteousness, those that are not tossed back and forth in the waves. It's by standing and facing it. Facing what is going on inside of ourselves first. If you can learn 
to give God glory through your actions, through your faithful acts of obedience despite the fact that you're weak, you will stand against a nation that is under judgment. You will stand no matter where God puts you. You will receive empowerment, refinement, and renewal that is life-changing. Saints, the name that our church has is not one that was taken for a marketing reason. It was taken because it was our experience, just like it was men of old. I'm happy to say that that is not a one-time experience. It is life-changing ministries. I want to hand this off to my brothers, and I want to tell you, you do not want to miss Wednesday night. Where we are going is something that we are trying to prep for right now at the end. And I'm unashamedly telling you that because it's good enough for you to be paying attention That's to right. it. Amen. Times on Sunday was a timely word. And we are heading headlong into further difficulty, further battle, and further glory for our king. Amen. Amen. What are you hungry for, saints? I want to see his glory. Yes. I want to see him glorified. Yes. We want to win and win with you. I'm going to read one more passage. And uh, we're going to finish up here tonight. They became good figs in the exile. I want you to think about that for a second. You don't become good in prosperous times. You don't become a good fig when everything is going right for you. You become a good fig in those difficult, excruciating crucifying moments of exile, separation, feeling alone, despair. Those are the moments, and I have to be honest with you, the most godliest men I have ever seen in my life are the men that live in those types of situations. The men that live in the most crucifying moments that you can live in. Those are the godliest men I know, and it's not because they whine in those situations, it's because they've learned to accept it, Give glory to God through it, and God makes them. Those are the moments you actually feel closer to the Lord. You feel very close to the Lord in a good time? Not much. But when you're in exile, you need him a little bit more. The last scripture we want to read is Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. What if the devil's schemes weren't just, you know, fraudulent charges on your bank account? What if the devil's schemes weren't just, you know, weird little thoughts in the night that there's a devil running around? And that happens. That is the devil's schemes. But what if the devil's main scheme is to try to get you to believe that God's circumstance in your life is not God's circumstance, that it's something else. And to get you all twisted around in your mind so that you can actually... Start to resent God's circumstance to make you grow. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Man, the devil knows that if you can give glory to God during a a, a trial, there's nothing he can do to stop you. But therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to... Stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Honest assessment about where you're at. 
being truthful with yourself and your brothers around you, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, with which you can extinguish the devil's lie that God doesn't want you to succeed in the kingdom because of your circumstance. Take up that shield of faith so you can extinguish those lies, church. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. We are going to do that by the end of tonight. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for all of the saints. This is how you survive this is to always be connected with God through praying and connecting with him. As we close, uh, Bethany, would you put Jeremiah 13, uh, 15, and 16 back on the screen for us? The depth of what the man uh, before you presented tonight is pretty stellar. Anybody see much of this while you were reading today? <laughs> There's a whole lot of revelation that was going on, and this is the one that stood out to me. It's the one that pierced my heart the most, and it's the one I'm going to share with you now. Hear and pay attention. Can't tell you how many times I've said that as a father. <laughs> can't tell you how many times I've said that as a teacher. I can't tell you how many times I have to say that and think that as a pastor. You need to hear and pay attention to what was said to you tonight. Do not be arrogant. The very first thing that an arrogant person says is they must not be talking about me. I'm good. I'm good. Man, that's a good word, man. I hope everyone else heard that word. That's arrogance. I mean, that's a Psalm 36-2 kind of moment where you've let your pride, your arrogance, make you where you can't detect or hate your own sin. For the Lord has spoken. He's spoken to you tonight. Next verse, please, Bethany. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings the darkness. The way that most of us, the way that I heard of this initially was give glory to God while the darkness is here. Yeah, yeah that's the minimum. If you're not doing that, then you're literally not doing the minimum in the kingdom. Is that convicting to anyone? It should be. The goal is that you are able to give glory to God before He brings the darkness. You're so good at it when it's here that you're able to do it before it gets here. Wow. What happens when we have a church like LCM if we can do what the last two verses have said? Pay attention. Don't be arrogant for the Lord has spoken and we actually learn how to give God glory in the midst of it. We don't let our fears overwhelm us. We don't let our circumstances dominate us. We don't let the past just keep dominating everything about us. We're actually able to give God, give the Lord your God glory before he brings the darkness. Before your feet stumble on the darkening hills. You hope for light, but it'll be changed to utter darkness. That is what's going to be going on around us. The difficulties are coming. If you're ever going to do something in the kingdom, it's going to get more difficult than what you have right now. 
Congratulations. Amen. You can go be like the rest of the masses and do nothing in the kingdom, and it'll get plenty easier from here. We'll, we'll talk to you about sunshiny days and, and happy times, and, and you'll be like the other majority in our country that don't even pretend like they go to church anymore. God has got something for you tonight, and it's about you giving glory to him. Come on. Not giving glory in spite of your circumstances. We give God glory in our circumstances. We give God glory because we know that it's working something into us and you need it. I need it. And then we learn how to even give God glory before the darkness comes. Stand to your feet. You know, giving God glory is the solution to removing arrogance from your heart. Recall what was spoken to Achan whenever God began to drill down. <laughs> Give glory to God, man. Agree with the judgments of truth that God has brought about you. When you agree with God's judgments, then you find his ability to bring restoration and empowerment. God called you to be part of this church because you are one life that will affect one family and together will affect one nation. There's no way that we accomplish that without giving glory to God, first accepting his judgments about us. So we're going to raise up our hands. We're going to lift up our heads. We're going to give God glory and let his truth sift our hearts and minds and purify. Amen. Mighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth, your belt of truth. Lord, that you give us to purify our hearts and our minds. We say, Spirit of truth, come lead us into all truth. Lead us into your holiness, your, your pure and righteous linen that covers our shameful nakedness. Lord, that we can stand rightly before you and rightly represent who you are. We give you our hearts. We give you our minds right now and we thank you for your word that will permeate them judging its thoughts and judging its attitudes and telling us exactly what we need to do as a result of it in the name of jesus we bless this time amen, amen. amen.